Well, Happy New Year to you. How many of you made a New Year's resolution? Show of hands, please. Okay, not bad. Okay, put, put them down. How many of you would be brave enough to share with the rest of us what your New Year's resolution is? Okay, I see some hands. I'm going to come see you here. See if I can keep my microphone on. Let's see here. All right, where were the... Oh, the hands just went away. Let's see. All right, uh, Garen, what would you resolve? Drink more water. Drink more water. There are about 15,000 people in the next week that will hold you accountable for this decision. So well done. Well done. That's a good one. That is a good one. Yes. Let's see. Hand over here. Yes. To follow the Holy Spirit when you feel Him impressing you to do something. Excellent. Wow. That's hard to beat, isn't it? Yes, ma'am. Make more disciples for Jesus. Make more disciples for Jesus. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. Yes. Sleep more. Sleep more. Not now, right? Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. Yes. Good sleep. Let's see. Someone else. Any book? All the rest? Okay. Let's see. One or two more here. She is smiling very broadly. I'm really curious. What, what's your resolution? You are learning Romanian three times a week. Wow. Is there anybody else that made that resolution? <laughs> it, the only one, may it go well. Yes, that's excellent. That's excellent. Now, one more. Let's see for, from this side over here. Anyone? Okay, right over here. Yes. This really is the, this is like accountability on steroids, isn't it? I mean, this is, yes, sir. Be a good husband and father. Amen. Amen. Yes. Well done. You know, we're not the only ones that make resolutions. In fact, uh, there are thousands of people that make resolutions every year. In fact, there are sufficient numbers that there are companies that actually do surveys about people who make New Year's resolutions. So, for instance, uh, Statista, uh, a company that does such things, October of last year surveyed 417 adults ages 18 to 64, and here's what they discovered. 59% resolve in 2024 to save more money. That's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, 50% to exercise more. 47% to eat healthier. 40% to spend more time with family and friends. 35% to lose weight. And 19% to spend less time on social media. Hmm. You know, I confess, it's hard to argue with uh, some of these resolutions, isn't it? I mean, these are, these are good things, are they not? Yeah, I mean, if, 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 you, if, if you decide to exercise more or drink more water or, or, or be a better person, but I mean, these, these, these are good things. Now, I confess, if you're one of the people that resolve to spend less time on social media, that does not include this broadcast. Okay, so you can cut out everybody else, but, but just keep, keep Pioneer on your, on your to-view schedule. We, we, we need to keep that running there, right? These things being good, I mean, let's be honest, some of these are not just resolutions. Sometimes we dream about doing these things. I mean, this, this is like a top life goal, the things that we resolve to do in the new year. But I wonder, what if, when it came to New Year's resolutions, we did a survey of God? What if we surveyed God and we just say, God, what, what are your dreams for us this year? 
What would you have us to resolve to do in this new year? I wonder what the survey would say. You know, I can't sit here and claim that I know uh, all of the, what God specifically would dream for you as an individual. But I do know that there was a time when God got fairly specific with his people in general as a whole, and he shared his dream for them, what he longed for them to resolve to do. And perhaps by studying what God dreamed for his people then, we can understand a bit more of what God would have us resolve to do now. Let's find out. If you have a Bible, take a look at Micah chapter 6, verse 1, please. Micah chapter 6, verse 1. In most of your pew Bibles, that is page 627. Page 627, Micah chapter 6, verse 1. While you're looking that up, let me give you a little bit of background to what we'll be looking at here in Micah. Uh, Micah's ministry was quite some time ago. It ran roughly from 742 B.C. into the early part of the next century. So quite a long period of time. He was a contemporary with other prophets like Hosea uh, and Isaiah. Now, Isaiah and, and, and Micah were kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum as far as Isaiah was in Jerusalem. He was kind of a, a city prophet, okay? Whereas Micah was very agricultural in his setting. Some scholars have speculated that he perhaps even was a, a peasant, and yet God called him to be a prophet. Uh, Micah's ministry is explicitly stated to have overlapped with the reigns of three kings of Judah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And you would be hard-pressed to find a, a, a more disparate series of kings in either Judah or Israel's history. Uh, Jotham, for instance, the first king, uh, he was a good guy himself. He worshiped God himself, but there was fairly widespread apostasy amongst the people. He didn't take away the high places, pagan forms of worship, etc. Then his son, Ahaz. We heard about Ahab in the children's story. He was a bad guy. Ahaz was in that same sphere. Ahaz was a moral and spiritual disaster. He, he took whatever the people were doing under his father's reign and multiplied it. Now, the high places where, where, where pagan worship took place, he multiplied those things. He even sacrificed one of his own sons in the fire to a pagan god. And, and the inference is, is that others in, in uh, Judah and Israel were following suit. They were following the example of the king. He even took altars to pagan gods, spread them on every corner, is what the Bible says, in Jerusalem, and even put one of them inside the precincts of the temple of God Almighty himself. On top of that, blood ran through the streets on occasion, murder was common, people stealing from one another. It was an absolute mess during Ahaz's reign, and then his son Hezekiah comes to the throne. Funny thing. Uh, children's Bible story books, you know, bedtime story type things. Lots of things about Hezekiah, not so much about Ahaz. Okay. Hezekiah was like the polar opposite of his dad. And so this has led scholars to assume that most of Micah the prophet's ministry was aimed at the first two kings that he overlapped with, Jotham and Ahaz. And because of Micah's focus on this and the depth of immorality that was present in Judah and Israel... God, speaking through his spirit, through Micah, has some very pointed things to say. And as it turns out, some of the most famous passages in all of the Old Testament come from Micah's ministry, including one that we're going to read now. Take a look. Micah, chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. 
Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Pause for just a moment. This is what's known as a covenant lawsuit. Now, this is a fascinating thing. Some of you probably grew up with this. I had to get a couple degrees before I learned about this. It's called a reeb, R-I-B, if we were to transliterate it here, a reeb. And this is a covenant lawsuit where God is bringing his legal case against his people. And this first verse here, this is the summons. God here is calling out. They say this case is about to be heard. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Now, isn't this interesting? This is the call for witnesses. To witness the proceedings, these legal proceedings that God is is engaging in. And so deep is Judah's sin, so deep is Israel's sin, that the only suitable witnesses are the hills and the mountains and the earth itself. That's how deep and broad was their sin. And and once he's done this summons, now comes the plaintiff's address. The plaintiff here is going to address and and talk about the benevolent things that God has done for his people. Verse 3, my people, what have I done for you? How How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now, God is setting the stage here. And this particular one, this last one here, is particularly significant. Your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, this is when they crossed the Jordan River into the promised land. In other words... The very dirt under your feet, God is saying to Judah and Israel. I gave it to you. This this is for you. And yet this is how you have treated me in response. And then we come to verse 6. And here we switch from God speaking, directly at least, to, to, to Micah giving a response now. Okay, so, so, so the ac- your accusations here are about, are about to be drawn. Uh, the, the plaintiff shares all the benevolent acts, giving a, a history, a backdrop of this covenant. The, the Jews have treated God spitefully in spite of his blessings, and now Micah is going to embody the people and give a response. It's not necessarily his personal feelings that are going to be reflected here. He is seeking to embody the nation. Verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow down before the exalted God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with with calves a year old? Tell me, were burnt offerings commanded by God? Yeah, absolutely. Okay? And indeed, the people of Judah and Israel were doing them. You see, this is the the great sadness of what was going on there. It wasn't just the abject evil. It was the patina of righteousness that they were seeking to put on it. You see, in the midst of murdering each other, blood flowing through the streets on occasion, sacrificing their children in the flames, worshiping pagan gods, etc., 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 they were still going to church on Sabbath. 
They were, they were still doing the sacrifices that God had required. The temple still had priests. You know, people bring in, bring their offerings and whatnot and supposedly confess their sins. The sacrifice would take place and then for the other rest of the week, they would do whatever they jolly well pleased. Mike, it says that the nation thinks they're doing what God has commanded. And then he says this. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And here Micah reveals the lie. Because while the nation has been trying to hide under this patina of righteousness, there were yet some very public things that were not only not what God had commanded, sacrificing one's children to the flames, for instance, but were explicitly what he commanded them not to do. God has opened the court. He has set the stage. The people, Micah speaks for them, have responded. And now comes the indictment. This is what God wished his people had done. Verse 8, he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the covenant that in this particular context God is referring to. You've broken this one, God is saying. To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. You know, some fascinating things that God is saying here. You know, where it says here in the English, He has shown you, He has shown you, O man, what is good. The Hebrew there has, has the connotation of to make conspicuous, to, to declare, to make clear. In other words, what God wanted for his people was obvious. It was conspicuous. The people of Israel and Judah in Micah's day had all the information they needed to know what God wanted from them and for them. For instance, let me put some things on the screen here. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God by walking in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord that I am giving you this day for your own good. I mean, this is hundreds of years in the past. They had had this for hundreds of years. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. This is the, the scene is where Saul is being rejected as king. But Samuel declared, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obedience to his voice? Behold, obedience is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And Hosea, a contemporary of Micah, chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire mercy, God says, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, to be clear, God here is not at that time denying that they needed to bring the offerings as the sanctuary service, etc., had prescribed. That was to take place all the way up until Jesus died on the cross. What he's saying is you, you, you should have done those things and let them do what they were designed to do in your heart. 
to change you from being somebody that's hard-hearted to somebody that, that, that is faithful to God, that has his love in their hearts. There was no mystery to what God's will was for his people in that day. They knew what he wanted. The evidence was abundant, available, and clear, which I believe brings us to an overarching theme of God's dreams for his people in 2024. Let me just put it on the screen here for you. Let us live what God has already said. Let us live what God has already said. Now, New Year's resolutions, I mean, these have a a, great history of of doing something new, and often that's totally appropriate, not knocking that at all, and we must pay close attention to what God has already asked us to do. You know, there are so many in the church today who are dedicated to finding something new, new ways to grow in Christ, new views on salvation, new ways of defining and dealing with sin, new requirements for church membership, new requirements for ministry, new ways of interpreting Scripture and the spirit of prophecy. And without doubt, there are times when we need that which is new. I mean, we are told in Scripture to sing what kind of a song to the Lord? To sing a new song to the Lord. We're to put new wine into... New wineskins. Even God gets in on the act. His mercies are what every morning? New every morning. In fact, so much is this old world in need of renewal that at its end, Christ himself will declare, Behold, I am making all things new. So we praise the Lord for growth and innovation and change for that which is new. And... And we must never forget that godly newness will never contradict God's word. It will not contradict what we find in these pages. It may open our eyes to new and deeper understandings of it, yes, but if it is from God, it will not violate his word. You know, in Adventism, we have this thing called present truth. Uh, It's a concept that to a greater or lesser degree, depends on what time of our history it is, has been core to the Advent movement for more than a century and a half. It has never meant the abolition of Scripture in favor of culture or personal opinion, even if that personal opinion is shared by millions of other people. So my gentle challenge to those of you making resolutions for the new year is this. As you move into a new year with new resolutions for doing new things, remember also to revisit what God has already revealed. And as our scripture said, live it with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And with that as a prelude, let's unpack the resolutions God dreams of his people making in this text. What did God say? He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justly. That's the first one that God says there, to do justly. Uh, there's, there's no mystery here. To, to do justly, the, the word translated here is justly. Some versions have justice, either are fine. They're from the Hebrew root word shafat which means to judge. And so unsurprisingly, the message here is clear. What God is calling us to do in this part of Micah 6, 8 is, yes, to live justly, that is, to make right judgments. 
good decisions as to how we live our lives and to appropriately assist in helping right judgments, good decisions, to come to pass in the lives of others. But notice carefully, no one can correctly judge what to do in a life situation unless there is a standard for making that judgment. You follow me? No one can correctly judge what to do in a life situation unless there is a standard for making that judgment. Uh, My dog makes many judgments on any given day. Not all of them are sound. When it's 3 a.m. and for the 10th time my dog wakes me up barking at an intruder which is not there because I checked. This is not a correct judgment on the part of my dog, all right? There has to be a standard. So no wonder God is crystal clear in Micah and the rest of Scripture for that matter as to what that standard is to be. That standard of judgment is God as expressed in His Word. Now, some of you are thinking right now, I got a bit out of bed for this. I mean, duh. I mean, of course the Bible. I mean, God is the standard of I mean, doesn't everybody, We're here at church. We study the Bible, of course. To which I would say, not so fast. For today, there are wide-ranging views on just what justice is and what its standard ought to be. For instance... Depending on what sources you consult, there, there's no uniformity across the discipline here on this, uh, justice scholars will often cite three main justice paradigms, distributive justice, retributive justice, and restorative justice. But in addition to these three, there are other paradigms of justice that are also prevalent, not just in the United States, but around the world, some overlapping with the three just mentioned, some fairly original. For instance... There's economic justice, there's corrective justice, there's commutative justice, procedural justice, social justice, academic justice, environmental justice, housing justice, criminal justice, global justice, and there are still more justice disciplines. The list could go on. However, while some of these categories have proven helpful... I fear that overall, they tend to blur, listen carefully please to what I'm going to say next, they tend to blur the absolute supremacy that God demands among His people when it comes to defining what true justice is. I'm not speaking of secular government here. I'm not talking about among the civil authorities, but among God's people. Again, lesser categories of justice may be important in civil affairs and they may serve a useful purpose for a time, but when it comes to God's people and how they are to live, justice is defined first and foremost in reference to God and God alone. Now Micah makes no secret of this. Uh, If we were to read, for instance, in in Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, God there, through Micah, rails against his people because they have stolen fields and houses from their countrymen, depriving them of their inheritance and any ability to pass wealth onto their children. But Judah and Israel are condemned not because they have violated housing justice or distributive justice, but because they have violated God's justice. In Micah 6... 
God, through Micah, curses Judah and Israel for using dishonest scales in the marketplace, giving patrons less food or materials than they actually paid for. But such business people are condemned not because they have violated economic justice, but because they have violated God's justice. And in Micah 7, God, through Micah, bluntly condemns the leaders of Judah and Israel for taking bribes for requiring special payment for access to the halls of power and for thus subjugating the poor to the rich. But such leaders are condemned not because they have violated social justice or procedural justice, but because they have violated God's justice. And remember, this injustice is all being done by God's people to God's people. Time out for just a moment. It's important to note that in those days there was no distinction between God's people and the civil authorities. We all understand that, correct? What we call now the, you know, the, the historic verbiage is a wall of separation between church and state, right? That was not the case back in those days. Okay, they, they, were, they were one and the same. You know, sometimes it was a theocracy, sometimes a divinely infused monarchy, this kind of thing. Those things are not in existence today. The civil powers today operate in their sphere, and we as Christians must honor those powers and their forms of justice as far as Scripture allows. But when it comes to how God's people conduct themselves in their churches, in their schools, on their campuses, God absolutely refuses to let us separate justice from himself or from his word. And how come? The answer is because God knows something. God knows this. When we separate virtue from its source, capital S, when we separate virtue from its source, that virtue sooner or later will become vice. Now let that sink in. I'm going to read it one more time. When we separate virtue from its capital S source, that virtue sooner or later will become vice. Now, why is this so? Why does this happen? Because virtue needs a rudder to guide it. And if you separate virtue from its source, it no longer has that rudder. And now follow me carefully here. And since justice is simply virtue rightly applied... Rudderless virtue will sooner or later turn justice into vice. Now, some of you may think that this is hogwash. History says otherwise. Perhaps one of the most famous examples of this dynamic of of virtue becoming vice, outside of the Bible at least, is the French Revolution. 1789 to 1799... The French Revolution had a number of three-word mottos, perhaps the most famous of which was, do you remember what it was? Liberty, fraternity, and equality. Okay, liberty, fraternity, and equality. Now, if we, if we excise this from the French Revolution, are those good virtues? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, wouldn't that be great if we had more of that? You know, liberty, fraternity, equality, that, that's great. Those are good virtues. But the French Revolution was explicitly atheistic. In other words, it specifically, by explicit vote of its legislature, took the rudder of God and his word and separated it from virtue. And the result? 
The result was quite literally blood running in the streets. In that 10-year period, religion was outlawed, worship of anything but reason was banned, the institution of marriage was reduced to a brothel, humane relations at a societal level essentially vanished, and the guillotine could not work fast enough to kill all the people that they wanted to kill. Thousands lost their lives because the rudder was gone. The rudder of God and God's word was gone. And what started as an effort to elevate various virtues ended up becoming one of the bloodiest chapters in the history of the world. Virtue had most certainly become vice. Now, I am not here today to tell you that the French Revolution is coming again tomorrow. But do we not see the very same seeds that started the French Revolution being planted today? Think about it. Are not virtues like freedom and equality and equity and love and community all being bandied about as what society's top goals should be? Yet God is not included in their equation. The Word of God is conspicuously absent from the discussion. The rudder is disconnected from those virtues. And a thoughtful person cannot help but ask, what does the future hold? Is the terrible history of what rudderless virtue can do in danger of being repeated again? If you get a moment, do a little search throughout history, you will find that almost every oppressive regime that ended up slaughtering how many ever thousands or millions of its own people all began by seeking to elevate virtue without the rudder of God and His Word. Surely this is not God's dream for His people. I would submit that instead God's dream for His people is that they will resolve to truly live justly, to live according to the judgment of God as revealed in His Word. For only then can we be free. That's the first resolution for God's people, to live justly. There is a second in the text. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord desires of you, to do justly, to love mercy. This is a great one. What a resolution to make. You know, in the, in the Hebrew here, the word is, is, is kesed. And, and yes, it is translated as mercy, but it also has the connotation of, of kindness and goodness and loving kindness. I mean, this, this, is, this is just a, a, a term that, that embodies some of the best attributes of God. And what God is saying is, I don't want you just to practice it occasionally. I want you to love it. Now, can you imagine what the world would look like, our world today, what it would look like in 2025 if a majority of the planet in 2024 dedicated themselves to loving God's kind of mercy? Can you imagine what the news reports would look like compared to what they look like now? You know, what might, what might have happened in Micah's day? If Judah and Israel had loved mercy as God intended them to, what if instead of stealing houses and land from one another, they provided instead opportunities for those kindred to grow their holdings? 
What if instead of requiring a bribe to secure justice in the courts, they applied God's law equally to all people regardless of their circumstances? What if instead of using dishonest scales in the marketplace, they used honest ones and perhaps even gave a bit more to those who were in need? You know, history is already written on that account. We can't say for sure what might have happened. But I strongly suspect that such loving mercy might have transformed those nations and it just might transform ours as well. And what of the final resolution that God craved for his people? To do justly, he said. To love mercy. And lastly, to walk humbly with our God. You know, sometimes I think we look at this little list here and we think, well, God started real strong, but he kind of ended weak. I mean, to live justly, yes, yes. To love mercy, that's a good one too. To walk humbly with your God. That seems kind of prosaic, a little boring maybe. So my mother is uh, probably someone that I think probably none of you have met. Uh, And the reason is, is because uh, she's in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's. Uh, She's in a facility not too far from here. Uh, and uh, her memory is, is essentially non-existent, uh, but, but her body has persisted. Uh, she has some, some, some tough genes there. Uh, she uh, fell a few months ago. She, she broke her hip and uh, you know, was told to, to rest easy or whatnot, which is hard to do with somebody with Alzheimer's. They kept her in bed most of the time, and uh, a couple weeks after that, maybe two weeks, I don't know, three weeks, something like that, she was at the facility she was at then, and she said to the aide, Can I walk? And the aide, not knowing any better, said, sure. Whereupon my mother got up and walked all over the facility and like nothing had ever happened type of thing. So with Alzheimer's, you die twice, right? Your brain goes first, your your mind goes first, and then eventually your body catches up. Well, my mom, because she's a walker, even though there's lots of stuff that we couldn't do together, we, we could go for walks together. And to walk with my mom is not necessarily the same as walking with most other people. Her pace, for instance, as you might imagine, is different than my normal one. Uh, you know, she, she likes to stop, for instance, for shiny objects. Do you, you know what I mean? You know, something that, that gathers her attention. Again, her mind is, you know, is, is not working very well at all. But if we're walking together. If we go past a window and she looks out, maybe she, you know, if the sun is out and, and you know, there's a tree or something waving in the breeze, oh, let's, let's look at that. You know, her memory is terrible, but there are still phrases that she can remember and still say in response to, to, to certain things. And, and she'll look at scenes on porches or you know, the trees, the birds or whatnot. There's these paintings in many of these, of these care facilities, there are these abstract works of art. I have no idea why you would put abstract works of art in a memory facility. I mean, their brains are already abstract enough. You don't need any help from the stuff that's on the wall, right? So, so, but we'll go by those things, and my mom will stop. Oh, oh, pretty colors. Look at those colors. You know, Even though she's been past it, you know, 30 times kind of thing. Some might call mom's pace slow. But I confess that I see a lot more of the world around me when I walk with her rather than without her. I, I notice details of things and places and certainly of the other people that are residents where she's at that, that I would never have seen if I'd just been walking by myself. You know, so different uh, was mom's pace, particularly as she's grown older. 
that I soon found it was best to offer her my arm or, or to put my hand in hers. You know, that way she could determine the speed at, at which we both moved. And of course, when you're arm in arm or hand in hand, it turns out you can do something that too many Americans don't do anymore. You can talk. <laughs> you can talk together. Especially about personal things, since you both know so much of the same history and so many of the same people and stories. You know, even with my, my mother's almost non-existent memory, there, there are still people and events that if, if you hearken back to them, it doesn't matter how many times you do it, it will still elicit a response. You know, have you heard anything from your dad? Have you heard anything from your mom? Oh, no, not recently. Oh, she called the other week. And, you know. And it doesn't hurt that you're probably out of earshot of other people. <laughs> it's like you're in a little bubble of attentiveness. The outside world is there, but, but it's also not there. Time kind of stands still when I'm walking with my mom. Even in her dementia, mom and I love to share those walks. For you see, there is just something about walking with someone that seems to make us better people. For when we walk with someone, we see more and we hear more and we learn more and consequently we grow more, more than we ever could if we were just walking on our own. Do I even need to draw the parallel? And so it is when we walk with Jesus. His pace is different than ours, that's for sure. But whether it be faster or slower, we, we know that on that walk, we will experience exactly what is best for us to experience. You know, sometimes he will stop us to learn more about the world around us. Sometimes he'll hustle us on to, to help us avoid some danger. As we walk, he will often talk with us about deeply personal things, things that others may not understand but that he knows and cares about intimately. And yes, it is best to take his hand on these walks. That's the best way to make sure that you keep step with his pace. And if you do this, you will see more. And you will hear more. And you will learn more. And you will grow more than you ever could if you were walking by yourself. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Surely these are the kinds of resolutions God would have us make this new year. Surely when God dreams of the best for us, these are the kinds of things he dreams about. May this new year be a very good year for each one of us, and may all of God's dreams for us come true. Lord Jesus, we have the prospects of a brand new year before us. Lord, the possibilities, the things that you could achieve through us, Lord, here. We want to dream your dreams, Lord. I pray that indeed we would be people 
that do justly, that love mercy, and that walk humbly with you. Indeed, Lord, may your dreams for us and all those listening come true. We pray this in your name. Amen.